Welcome to the How and the Why. With John Barrett Ingalls. Exploring and celebrating the creative process and the creative purpose of authors, editors, and artists that make up and inspire the Black Hill Press family. Black Hill Press is dedicated to the novella. We believe a great story is never defined by its length. Let's get creative. John Barrett Ingalls, and today we are connected with Jenny Baker, the Editor-in-Chief of Found Poetry Review. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So, I guess I, I was trying to figure out what the best course of action is, but I, I think we should start off by talking about what is found poetry. Sure. So on a basic level, um, the definition that I often like to point to is that found poetry is the literary equivalent of a collage. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just as you imagine that, you know, a visual artist, you know, might take a bunch of magazines, cut out different things, and then reassemble them together uh, to make a new piece of art, um, you know, we see the same thing happening with text. So, you know, we have people working with a lot of different source texts. Um, and it can be anything, you know, from the spam mail you get, you know, in your mailbox, uh, you know, to newspapers, to something more literary. Um, you know, looking at that text with a fresh set of eyes, excerpting different words and phrases, and then recombining those pieces of text to make something new. Hmm. Now, is this a, a, a newer form of literature? Is it something like maybe within the last... 50, 20 years, or is this something that's been, people have been doing for a long time? I would say it's certainly gained more popularity uh, within the last decade or two, but, you know, it really goes back to, um, you know, there's a couple examples. I, I usually cite, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, right? He uh, sort of went through different editions of the Bible, kind of cut out things that he didn't agree with, and then, you know, repieced all of the remaining segments together to make his own kind of Jefferson Bible. Uh, so that's kind of an early example, um, you know, and it also has its roots in, in um, you know, poets like, like T.S. Eliot, who's weaving, you know, all sorts of references and, and pieces of other texts, you know, into the poem that he's created. So it has historical roots. Um, you know, it's really gained a lot more popularity within the last two decades. Um, you know, traditional publishers are starting to see it as its own, um, you know, kind of art form in its own right. Um, and publishing it aside, um, what people would consider, you know, original works of poetry. Now, I'm looking at, you You have listed here uh, four different types of found poetry. you want to go over those for our listeners? Sure. Um, 
Like you so, have erasure. <laughs> yeah, why don't you remind me what we have? Of course. Erasure. Uh, so, okay. Am I saying that correctly? Erasure, yeah. Um, uh, so when we talk about uh, erasure poetry, um, that involves a poet taking um, usually, you know, a single page from a text. Uh, sometimes people work with kind of two-page spreads. Um, and then erasing words and phrases in order as they appear on the page, um, creating a poem by leaving just select words and fragments as they go along. Hmm. And, and this this form is a little bit harder than traditional sound poetry. Um, so I think we'll talk about the other different forms. But this is a little bit more challenging because the poets have to use the words in order as they're presented, and they have less um, kind of liberty to remix them at will. So it's kind of like uh, uh, like that movie Beautiful Mind, where uh, where uh, uh, I can't think of his name, um, uh, Russell Crowe, whatever the name of the character he played, uh, would look at newspapers and feel like they were messages to him because he would see different words. Is that kind of like erasure poetry? Yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting comparison because I think it does kind of take this ability for somebody to stare at a page and get away from whatever the literal meaning is and kind of look for words and phrases that might jump out at them and, and weave something new together. Or those are people that say like, you know, on the eighth page or the of the eighth line of every Shakespeare play, you know, there's there's a mess something like that. So that's it's kind of like uh uh Maybe they're we 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 call them you know a little crazy or insane, but maybe they're just erasure poets. <laughs> Could be <laughs> that they're getting these messages. All right, so then you also have uh, freeform, excerpting, and remixing. Yeah, so that's kind of probably the, the biggest bucket of, of sound poetry, and that's you know um, where you where writers you know look at any type of source text. Um, and, and their methods differ. You know, some of them, you know, might read through a text, highlight different pages, or they might take notes in a notebook or Excel spreadsheet. Um, and then they just remix those at will. So they don't mm -hmm. necessarily have to use the words in order. Um, you know, if they're working with a book, they might be combining text that they found in Chapter 1 with text that they found later in Chapter 19. Um, so they have a little bit more freedom and liberty to, you know, shape their poem that way. I have these... I'm, I'm I'm probably I'm, I'm not trying. I hope I'm not being insulting, but it, this makes me think of <laughs> of uh, people who send ransom notes, <laughs> and they take you know different texts from different magazines and newspapers to you know put together their ransoms. <laughs> that's uh -huh. probably horrible. I'm, I hope that's not an, an insult. To uh, it just makes me think of that. But yeah, I don't, in, I don't in an really, uncreative I, way, obviously they're they're not poets, but um, yeah. But you know, even we see that kind of um, more tactile format of sound poetry a lot of times in workshops. So, you know, you'll have uh, particularly when people are doing these kind of sound poetry workshop with teenagers, um, it's become really popular to give them, you know, a copy of like Seventeen magazine or something like that, and have them you know, actually physically cut out the words. Um, and in that case, the final product actually does end up resembling quite a bit like a ransom note. We also have uh, 
cut up, which is kind of that that same thing, but that's that seems like it's more like um, like the poetry you would find in re- the magnets on refrigerators, where you yeah, take words and you reorganize. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's a good equivalent. Um, so you have uh, when you look back at kind of the um, history of sound poetry, you have uh, one of the Dadaists, um, Tristan Zara, uh, and then his kind of um, successor, William Burroughs, who really practiced this uh, more tactile form of sound poetry. So where they're actually like taking a, a piece of text, physically cutting it up with scissors, um, and then rearranging it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Tristan Zara went so far, I think, as to say, you know, cut up your poem um, or cut up your source text, put all the words in a bag. You pull them out in order, and, you know, the order that you happen to pull them out in and, and put them on the page is your poem. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, traditionally, I think when poets do this form, they like to move their, their words and phrases around a little bit. Um, but uh, that's where it has its roots, for sure. And then the last is cento. Yeah, so cento is um, a particular form of sound poetry um, that requires working with uh, other poems. So... Uh, you might imagine if you take like a collected work of poems by, say, Frank O'Hara, for example, mm-hmm. um, you would go through that collection and pull out entire lines. So you might pull out a line from, you know, uh, having a Coke with you. You might pull out a line from the poem, you know, uh, to the harbor master, et cetera, et cetera. And then you basically weave together a new poem uh, made up entirely of those lines. And that one, I, that form, I find is is actually the most challenging. Um, you know, one of the things that we try to do in sound poetry is um, to make sure that you know, independent of whatever source text that you might be using, that the final piece is really in your voice. Um, mm. That you're not simply, you know, distilling something that another writer or poet has, has produced. So centos are very hard in that way. You know, I, I've read a lot of centos where people are, you know. Um, trying to, to make a poem from, like, Robert Frost poems, and then the final poem still sounds like Robert Frost. Right. <laughs> so um, that, I think, requires a particular eye for um, how to mix and reweave those lines together. It's kind of like, uh, oh, again, I just keep thinking of these references, kind of like this the mashup trend in music when you take, except that's just one, you're using one artist. Um, yeah, now, how do you deal with, like, how does legality and copyright fit into all of this? Yeah, so we, we addressed that issue on, on a couple of different fronts. Um, you know, uh, from the Sound Poetry Review perspective, from the journal, um, there's a set of standards that were established by American University um, that covers, you know, fair use in poetry. And so generally what that says is that it's fine to excerpt and remix uh, lines from different works uh, as long as like, a significant transformation is taking place, mm. right? So as, as, as long as your intent is not to really copy or, or, or plagiarize those original authors. Um, but I think, you know, the issue of, of, of plagiarism and the legality speaks to kind of this bigger misconce- misconception that I think often happens around poetry you know, we have we have this myth of originality, right? You know, we we have this idea that there's always this, this writer, this poet who's 
sitting, you know, brooding alone in their house, you know, and then all of a sudden inspiration strikes from above and then they, you know, write down the words on the paper or on their computer. Um, but what what this myth, I think, really overlooks is that, you know, no poetry is ever created independent of influence, right? Mm. You know, you know, people are always drawing from, um, you know, writers that inspire them, things they've heard before. Um, so, so in that way, I think found poetry isn't actually all that different from what we might consider traditional poetry. It just shows its sources a little bit better. Mm. Now, let's talk a little bit about you and how you came into found poetry. I mean, you went to school for... Uh, uh, English, correct? Originally, no. Correct. Yeah, I got my bachelor's in English. Uh, I have a master's in professional writing. And that was found poetry something you were interested in the entire time, or was it something you discovered throughout your educational process? I actually didn't discover it as part of my education at all. I, I um, during graduate school, you know, because the the curriculum was so focused on like business writing. Um, you know, several of the fellow grad students and I found that we really needed a creative outlet where we could write, you know, poems and creative nonfiction and that kind of stuff. Um, so we ended up forming just kind of this little side poetry group on the side. And um, I hadn't heard of found poetry at all until, you know, each each week in that group we were taking turns kind of bringing in different poetry prompts that everybody would write to. And then uh, one day somebody brought in this prompt that said, you know, write a poem using only the words that you find on uh, a piece of product packaging. So I said, okay, well, this sounds a little bit weird, but I'm going to give it a go. Um, and I just so happened to have this box of, like, teeth whitening strips sitting next to me, uh, you know, when I went home that day. So I ended up writing my first found poem using words uh, that were found on that box. Um, and then were you hooked after that? Yeah, so so I thought, you know, it was fun, which which was a big thing. You know, I, I think, um, you know, traditionally when we try to write poems, um, you know, sometimes we always miss out on that element of fun because we're so focused on, you know, trying to encapsulate this emotion or this, this feeling, right, that we've been have been having. Um so so A, I think it was fun, but B, uh, I found that I increasingly turned to this approach uh when I was having writer's block. So I found that, you know, if I could start with some kind of a word bank, you know, again, whether that's a word bank on a piece of junk mail or, you know, uh, something different, then that at least kind of helped me get over that initial hurdle of, of starting to kind of put words on the page and, and shape a poem. Hmm. So you started in your group making these poems, uh, working with found poetry, uh, studying it, learning a little bit about its history, and then at what point did you decide to create the Found Poetry Review? Yeah, so, you know, as I was writing these poems, um, you know, I, I felt that some of them were starting to get good enough to submit. So, you know, I, I was sending them out to different journals. And, you know, was there something getting... that existed already that uh, was accepting of Found Poetry? Were there journals that didn't see it as, as saw it as its own individual art form. Yeah, at that time there were no journals uh, dedicated exclusively to found poetry. Um, you know, certainly there were journals that uh, published experimental work. Mm -hmm. um, 
but at that time there was none whose mission was, you know, exclusively uh, to promote this art form. So, you know, as I was submitting these journals, I was getting this kind of tepid response from some of them, and, you know, it really took me getting this one response to kind of light the fire underneath me. Um, and I, I still remember this email. It was this editor, and I, I looked him up on the internet later. He was kind of this older guy who looked a little bit cantankerous, but he sent me back this email that wasn't just the standard, you know, thanks, no thanks, but it was, he literally said, why don't you try writing something original for a change? Oh, wow. And and, and you could tell that the, like, sweetie was implied at the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was really kind of what started the wheels turning, like, okay, you know, A, there's not a journal uh, dedicated to this out there in existence, so I, I saw the need. Um, but B, you know, I was beginning to feel increasingly passionate about this art form as a, you know, a valid uh, process and approach in its own right. So, um, you know, one night, I, I'd been kind of brooding on this idea for a long time, and then one night, I think probably at like 2 a.m., I went online and registered the URL and uh, just went from there. Hmm. So how long ago was that? You how 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 long have you been in existence? Um, we started in the fall of 2011. Okay. Yeah. And you re uh, release annually, or um, biannually? How how often do you send out uh, your your uh, journals? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, originally we were publishing online, um, and so when we were publishing online, we were doing it quarterly, mm -hmm. um, but we moved uh, over to print a few years ago, um, and since that time, we've been publishing twice a year. Have you noticed uh, since you started um, a huge increase in people submitting? Definitely, and, and I think, um, you know, certainly since since we've started our journal, there have been, you know, a few others uh, who've popped up in the space um, that are, you know, publishing similar work. So I think general awareness is growing. Um, but I also credit, you know, the increase in submissions uh, and attention to the community that we've been able to establish around the journal. Mm. So so not just through, you know, the, the print issues that we publish, but um, – Moreover, through kind of the big National Poetry Month projects and those kind of things that we do, we've really kind of built up this army of people who find who find sound poetry really fascinating and interesting. And so, you know, whenever we have a message to put out there for, you know, calls for submission or anything like that, um, you know, we can really turn to this couple hundred people to really go be our microphone and help us spread the word, uh, you know, beyond just our traditional social media and email channels. Now, do you still find that there are those cantankerous um, people out there who are calling you plagiarists and saying that what you're doing is not original and like lighting the torches and picking up the pitchforks to come after you or is there more <laughs> of a welcoming uh, uh, open arm feel from the poetry community now? Yeah, you know, I, I would say that that subsided a little bit on the journal front. Um, you know, in the last year or two, I can't say that uh, you know, I've ever gotten any angry emails or, or backlash or anything like that. Um, I still see it a lot in kind of the personal poetry work that I do, um, you know, even to the point I'm currently taking this poetry workshop uh, at the Writer's Center down the street here in Bethesda. And 
I, I brought in, you know, erasure po- poetry for a workshop, and, you know, the teacher literally kind of held the poem up in the air and was like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, that sparked some conversation about originality and what sound poetry is. But, um, you know, I, I, I honestly see, you know, a lot of times people haven't heard of it, um, and they might have an initial maybe negative reaction to the idea. Uh, but I find that once you kind of talk to them, explore these ideas of originality, uh, you know, most of them come around. Hmm. Now, uh, are you, do you focus on one of those four types or on a couple of them, or are you open to all four types of sound poetry in your journal? Yeah, we're open to all of the different types. Um, again, for us, you know, the, the main thing that we're looking for is just poets who are able to transform a text, uh, you know, from what it originally was. So, you know, whether they're doing that through erasure or remix or centos or, or anything like that, um, what we're really focused on is, is you know, seeing people turn, I don't know, maybe like an IRS booklet into like a love poem or something like mm. that, you know. Um, are there themes that... Uh that are present in each volume or uh, what do you look for specifically in, in for each each uh, journal? Yeah, so I would say that the theme issue, the theme um, notion is one that we've struggled with a little bit because, you know, the nature of found poetry is that people might be pulling their poems from anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's hard as a whole to uh, kind of see these, like, big uniting themes. Um, You know, certainly when we lay out the journal, we try to lay them out in a way so that the poems, you know, segue into each other and that poems on certain topics appear next to each other. Um, One thing that we do do is we often publish uh, special issues um, in order to get maybe a, a more cohesive theme. So we've done, um, in the past two years, we did a special issue um, dedicated to David Foster Wallace mm. uh, on the on the fifth anniversary of his passing. So we had people, of course, you know, write some poetry from his writings. Um, and then this year, um, for Bloomsday, so, you know, the annual kind of celebration of, of James Joyce um, mm-hmm. and uh, Bloom's kind of walk around Dublin, uh, we had people uh, write poems inspired by Ulysses. Oh, that's cool. Now, do you have a like? I'm, I'm looking at the poets that you have, and obviously, it's they're growing almost exponentially in each volume. Is there a point where, like, you have volume seven that was the latest release? Is there a point where you're like, okay, this is this is the amount that we can have, or is it really more the size of the poems themselves? Yeah, I would say, you know, we don't have an official cap. Um, you know, we tend to publish probably anywhere between 30 and 40 poets in each issue. And we're really dedicated to quality more than anything. So, mm. you know, um, ultimately in the end, our decisions are guided by the um, actual quality of the pieces themselves versus trying to meet, you know, any kind of external cap. Right. How did you find your uh, your your audience? How how in the last three years how 
have you what have you used to uh uh grow your your fan base and your subscribers yeah so initially you know we used um kind of a lot of the traditional tools that you might think of you know we we used facebook and twitter quite a lot um you know we did some paid advertising um on those fronts you know just to kind of get the journal out in front of people's eyeballs um, you know, we made sure that we were listed on Duotrope. Um, there's a list, uh, it's called Selby's List, um, that's dedicated to listing, like, experimental journals. Uh, so we made sure that, that we were on there. Um, and then, really, actually, what we found is that, again, because we've built up this community, um, we have to, we don't have to put as much, kind of, paid advertising behind our, our different uh, efforts and our different issues. You know, we've got an email list now of, of a couple of thousand people. Um, we have a community, this online community of about two or 300 people. And, you know, kind of between those two channels, we find that, um, you know, we're able to, A, reach a lot of different individuals. But then we're actually able to have those those people in our community be advocates for us. Um, and, and so to have our message kind of expand exponentially that way. Hmm. Are you... Uh, I, I see that all of your volumes are available on Amazon, but are the, do you uh, exist in stores as well? Um, as of right now, we are exclusively online. Um, so, you know, one of one of the things that we've had to do as a as a small journal to keep costs low is is to use the print on demand hmm. uh, option for the journals. So, you know, rather than us, you know, maybe printing a run of a thousand journals and trying to, you know, sell them and distribute them that way. Um, we found that at least for the present time that kind of the print-on-demand model is probably our most cost-efficient option. And tell us, we're almost out of time, but tell us really quickly, aside from everything you're doing with Sound Poetry Review, uh, I know you're currently working on your own projects as well. Tell us a little bit about those. Sure. So um, the, the main project I'm working on right now um, is called Erasing Infinite. So, and it's at uh, erasinginfinite.com. Um, so basically what I'm doing is I'm taking the entirety of, of David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, which is like I think 1,063 pages. Oh, yeah. I've been um, uh, working my way through that for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most people abandon it at about page 200 or 300. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm scanning each of those pages in uh, one by one, creating erasure poetry from them, and, and then posting them online for, for folks to read. So that will be a multi-year project that probably will continue for the next decade or so, but um, definitely something that keeps me thinking and keeps me working. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, to talk with us. And uh, I'm, I, I love discovering new forms and mediums, and I'm, I'm going to explore the heck out of this. Well, great. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. This has been The How and the Why by Black Hill Press. I'm John Barrett Ingalls. The show was produced by Kevin Stanek and yours truly. The music is Mea Lua by Bossa Zuzu. I wanted to thank everybody for your creativity and your inspiration and to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.